data scientist at InQtel's Cosmic Works Lab, and you're listening to Trading Data, the richest and most compelling data science podcast out there. Today, I'm excited to welcome back to the show Dylan George, a VP on InQtel's BNext team. And we're doing things a little bit different today. Uh, we're recording this in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, so we are uh, recording remote. Uh, apologies for any uh, challenges in terms of sound quality or anything breaking out, but we're going to do our best. So, Dylan, for the listeners who aren't as familiar with the BNext Lab, can you tell us what you do? Yeah, thanks. Uh, hi, everybody. This is uh, Dylan George. Um, just as a personal intro, as, as Nick mentioned, I'm a VP in BNext. And prior, and I've been doing that for about the last four years or so, prior to working at InQtel, I worked in the federal government in a couple of uh, areas, the most recent of which was at the White House in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, helping with the Ebola response uh, in 2014 and 15, and a couple other bio threat related uh, efforts. You know, BNEXT, though, at InQtel is um, a really wonderful group within InQtel. It is focused on advancing critical technologies, both data technologies and biotechnologies, broadly speaking, that are needed to respond to infectious disease outbreaks and pandemics. And so, as you can imagine, um, that's we, we're really busy right now and trying to help out with the COVID response, but uh, super pleased to be able to be here with you all today. Awesome. Thank you, Dylan. Uh, and so the listeners to this pod know that we're normally focused on geospatial uh, computer vision and machine learning. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the intersection between that space and uh, Dylan's world in uh, the bio world. And uh, this kind of all came about... In, through this project that uh, Dylan and I worked on together, along with JJ Ben Joseph, another uh, BNext team member. And now, as I recall, this was mostly your idea, conceived of over uh, kind of an introductory lunch that you and I had shortly after uh, I started at InQtel at a Vietnamese place near the office. Now, can you give a quick summary of you know, you know your idea for this project and and how we got to where we are? Yeah. No. Uh... I was fascinated with the work that you all were doing in Cosmic Works and had been applying uh, ML and AI to satellite imagery. And I always walked away from those discussions energized and excited and, you know, not only from the topic that you guys are working on and the applications that you guys have been developing, but your team has been such uh, a strong team and a fun team to, to interact with. It was just wanted to think of something that we could do together. Uh, and it, I mean, Definitely, it occurred to both of us over lunch that there, over that, you know, faded lunch at the Vietnamese restaurant, there was, you know, significant similarities between geospatial imagery and biological imaging and how these different approaches of ML and AI could be applied to them. And we'd also been seeing just a lot of discussion uh, out there about how computer vision would impact biological and medical imaging out in the, in the public press. Um, but based on our lunch and what you all had been learning in Cosmic about satellite imagery and how hard it actually was to apply ML AI to some of those use cases that people are thinking about in that space, um, it, it became really interesting that it would be fun to pressure test the ideas that 
you know, computer vision would overtake all of biological imaging uh, in short order. And so I think from that discussion and that really, you know, great discussion that we had over lunch, it was it was born out to we need to do some project and, and try to flesh that out a little bit more and pressure test those ideas. Yeah, yeah. It was also born out of a little bit of experience that I had uh, in, my, in my past life prior to coming here where uh, I, uh, during grad school, did and a short postdoc after that, did a bunch of work on computer vision applied to microscopy data. Uh, and something that I was really astonished by as I was uh, interviewing and then joining the team here at Cosmic Works was really how similar the challenges were. Uh, that I faced when I was trying to analyze microscopy data uh, in grad school and my postdoc and the, the technical challenges that are faced with applying computer vision methods and deep learning to geospatial data. And, and that's kind of a lot of what we ended up centering uh, this work around. But, but that's not all there is to it, of course. Yeah, but your, your experiences that you had during your PhD and how you were trying in, in using biological imaging uh, and ML approaches, and then translating that to the geospatial made you the absolute perfect person to try to figure out how to translate across those two domains of geo and bio, and, and think about the application of these. And so it was, it was, yeah, it, you were just like the absolute perfect person to to think this through with. Yeah. So I mean, well, I mean, based on your experiences, though, I mean, these general observations. Why have what have you seen as the major reasons why? Things have lagged in bio versus security camera footage, photos from your iPhone, photos on the on the web. Why hasn't it, you know, um, computer vision swallowed biological imaging as it has in these other in these other spaces? Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, some of uh, my my opinions here might also apply to some other domains, and this was I think certainly true in some of the earlier work in. Uh, the geospatial domain and still holds true to some degree now. Uh, there are just really, from a technical standpoint, there are pretty substantial differences uh, between the data that you're getting out of a microscope or out of, you know, a, a medical device or off a satellite or anything like this from, from what you're uh, getting out of a, a camera phone or off a security camera. You're in, in, so-called natural scene imagery, images just that you'd find on the web, a picture of a cat or a dog, something off a security camera, et cetera, you're, you have a pretty stereotypical viewpoint. You're looking at uh, things you know, from kind of parallel to the ground uh, uh, look direction. Objects tend to be pretty large. You're always dealing with either a single grayscale channel, uh, commonly with security cameras, or standard RGB combination in something like uh, an iPhone picture. Uh, and so a lot of the computer vision algorithms that have been developed, uh, particularly the new deep learning tools that have been developed, have been focused on working with that very particular type of data. Now let's compare to what you're getting uh, off of a microscope or off a satellite or something like this. You're, you're going to be getting a wide variety of, of different bands, they're almost never going to be just RGB. In satellite imagery, that you do get some RGB, but uh, coming out of a microscope, that's extremely uncommon. And you're going to have changing band combinations from uh, image to image or, or from experiment to experiment. Uh, 
or from satellite to satellite. And so it's, it's in a way a lot harder to build a kind of standardized um, pipeline uh, where you're always ingesting the exact same kind of data because the data parameters change so much. And kind of similarly, um, the, the size of the images are very different between something you get off your phone uh, versus what comes out of a microscope or a satellite. If the, the images that tend to be fed into a machine learning model will be, you know, somewhere between 512 pixels on a side uh, up to, in, in some rare cases, a 4K image. Um, and this is going to be constrained by uh, your, your computing power that you have access to. Now, if we look at kind of a full satellite image or a full, uh, maybe a full slide scan off of a microscope or something like this, you're going to be working with an image that might be, you know, 100 or 150 megapixels, just, you know, orders of magnitude bigger than what you're getting uh, out of even a very high definition normal, uh, quote unquote, normal camera. And so... Algorithms that might be developed to work on one of these full normal uh, natural scene images are, are not going to be able to handle a full-size image. And then along with that, there's also the issue of the size of the objects that you're looking at in these images and their density. You know, there's and, and this is something that I uh, definitely encourage readers to uh, look at in the blog post that uh, you and I wrote along with JJ about this project, which we will link to in the show notes. But we have a graph comparing the number of objects in a given image uh, within the the most one of the most popular natural scene data sets called MSCOCO uh, versus the number of objects in a single satellite image or in a single image off a microscope. And the difference is just really staggering. You know, you'll, you'll frequently have, you know, maybe you have five dogs in a particularly uh, uh, fun to see uh, image out of MS Coco, but in satellite images in the SpaceNet data set uh, that, that Cosmic works, um, uh, works with, you're going to have hundreds to thousands or more uh, building footprints in an image. And it's just the, the difference in the number of objects that you might be trying to detect or something is, is really substantial. And because algorithms are tuned to some degree to detect a certain number of objects, um, you may not, uh, you may not be able to directly apply something that's trained to pull you know, a couple of dogs out of an image to, to then pull thousands of buildings out of an image uh, or thousands of cells out of a microscope in a slide image or, or pathology slide. Um, and then similarly, uh, the size of the objects in, in natural scene imagery versus microscopy is very different. Uh, you know, you've got usually thousands to tens of thousands of pixels for, in each dog that's in, a, in an image. You get very rich texture information. You get, you know, uh, just a lot of information because the more pixels there are that make up an object, the more information there is for a machine learning model to learn, to figure out what is a dog versus a cat versus a person. Now, if you look at how big a building might be in a satellite image, they're, they're much smaller. You know, we're, we're talking hundreds of pixels usually. 
Now, that's, you know, 10% to the amount of information or less that, you, that you'll have uh, for the model to actually learn to make this prediction based off of. So it's, it, it's from a pure information standpoint, a much harder problem to find a building in a satellite image or a cell in a, in a microscope image where, you know, uh, I mean, in at many resolutions of microscopy, you're not going to have many more than a couple hundred pixels for, for an object that you're trying to identify. So all of these, all these factors combine to make this uh, a much more challenging problem. And then I think there's one final, uh, really, a couple of final really important points. Um, one, there just aren't that many really good, well-labeled data sets out there for uh, building algorithms uh, on specifically microscopy data or satellite imagery. You know, they're part of the reason for some of this explosion that we've seen in the computer vision world uh, has been the presence of some new, really high quality data sets like the ImageNet data set, the MS Coco data set, things like this, that people have been able to develop algorithms against. And something that Cosmic Works uh, realized when, when uh, our team first uh, kicked off the SpaceNet effort alongside Maxar Technologies was that. Um, there, there weren't really good satellite imagery data sets out there with high quality labels that, that one could develop algorithms against. And this makes it really hard. Uh, and, and we're seeing a similar problem right now with the microscopy, pathology, et cetera, uh, challenges in uh, the bio realm where there still aren't that many, you know, broadly accepted, high quality, well-labeled data sets. They're starting to come out, but it's still very early stages. So, um, the, there's kind of all the technical issues, and then there's also just the fact that uh, there isn't the data out there to to overcome these technical challenges. Yeah, that was one of the things when we were working on this, and uh, that I was a bit surprised about is that the the available data or the the uh, well labeled data sets on the biological imaging and the medical imaging side, there weren't as many out there as I would have assumed. Um, Yes, there are some out there that have um, lots of images, but they're very specific images, uh, you know, either radiological or um, some some sorts of other sorts of CT scans and, and that sort of thing. But the degree to which they were labeled and the numbers of images, um, I was actually a little bit surprised that there wasn't something better out there. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, me too when I was digging into this. And and part of the problem here is that you need more than just, you know, a big data set to do this, right? There's there are so many aspects of a data set that need to come together perfectly uh, to be the ideal data set for developing these algorithms that, um, that it, it can be very challenging to put together. And this is something we've learned through working on the SpaceNet efforts. You need size. You know, you need the data set to be pretty big because algorithms can't learn very well if it's just 10 or 100 or even in some cases a 1,000 images. Um, you need high-quality labels. You know, you can't just label 5% of the ob of your object of interest. When, when we're uh, working on labeling for SpaceNet efforts, we go through after we get the labels back with a fine-tooth comb and, and – we're fine, and in our experience, you really need 98% or more of the objects of, of interest to actually be labeled if you want to develop an algorithm for, for finding that. Um, 
And so that's another, that's another kind of key feature of it. And then finally you need kind of the right balance of heterogeneity uh, and, and uh, similarity between the images. You don't want them all to be exactly the same. Your model will learn something very specific. You also don't want them to be so different that you're not going to be able to train an algorithm to learn a specific task. And so it's, it's a really tricky balance. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing that I found that I, that was a really interesting finding from our investigation in this space though, too, is that the need for skilled people to actually do the labeling. I mean, I think that there's a handful of areas where you can crowdsource labeling but I, I think as you get into more specifics, particularly in biological imaging, um, uh, and to some degree, I think in geospatial to, to a large extent as well, is that you need a, a, a fairly high level of training to understand what you're actually looking at. Um, there was some colleagues of, of ours that were showing us, you know, three, three images of cells on a plate. And um, of those three, they classified them as good, bad, and ugly. And I could not tell the difference between good and bad. I could definitely tell ugly. It was very clear. I mean, uh, you know, I'm enough biologically trained to know that the ugly was ugly. <laughs> but the good and the bad, I could not tell the difference between the two. And they easily, when they started pointing out the features, I could start understanding it. But it was, um, yeah, having the, the right amount of people to be able to label these, this kind of imagery, I think, is going to be, has, is, it became very clear to me that that's going to be a rate limiting step. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, the yeah, the amount of technical expertise that you need to label uh, medical or biological data is is really staggering, and and that makes it really ex even more expensive to create these high quality data sets, right? Um, and that uh, and and that certainly has been a barrier for the geospatial uh, realm, also, although it's not. You know, it's it's not nearly as hard or as uh, technically um, uh, requiring, in my opinion, as labeling something like uh, medical, you know, uh, scans, CT scans or something. Uh, it's still pretty hard to label buildings in an overhead image or, or accurately label road networks maybe when there's snow on the ground and doing it consistently across a whole city. This was... Uh, certainly a challenge that we um, that that our labelers were having to deal with in the most recent SpaceNet challenge when we had Moscow in the data set. Um, and and the other issue is just is unfortunately that um, a lot of the tools, the software tools that people have developed for doing labeling on uh, natural scene imagery uh, don't work very well for something like microscopy or, uh, or overhead because it's designed to work on, you know, a single image in isolation. You draw a few boxes on it and you're done. Now, if you're going to need to zoom way, way in on 150 megapixel image or something like this, and you want to find all of the buildings or all of the cells or whatever it might be, and that, or if you want to build a complete road network across this entire image where you're going to need connections between every single piece you zoom in on, or maybe you need to be able to look at all the individual channels differently in a microscopy image to be able to label it correctly. You know, these are all just technical barriers that um, none of this is, is really necessarily uh, impossible to address, but they're not solved in current labeling software. Um, 
so the other thing too is that I mean we've been talking about the the challenges of actually labeling the imagery, both geospatial imagery and uh, biological imaging. But um, I mean, you're the perfect I think person to answer this kind of question though too is that you know what has been your experience of um, expertise in machine learning in the biological realm and expertise of machine learning, particularly for medical or biological uh, imaging. I mean, is how much of that is out there? Is, is that a, a rate limiting step as well from what you've seen? I think, yeah, I think it is certainly a major barrier to advancement. And it, it kind of makes sense if you think about it. If you're going to try to develop machine learning algorithms to work on microscopy or medical imagery or or something like this, you're going to need an understanding not only of machine learning or not only of the, the medical or microscopy domain or whatever it might be, but you're going to need both. And this is just a very small set of people at this point who can do this. And there's there are uh, there are tools that are beginning to come out that are making this a lot easier. Uh, a, a great example is the fast.ai. Uh, set of tutorials and software package for making just doing deep learning a lot easier um, without necessarily needing to know every single detail of every, I don't know, convolutional filter in your neural network. But, um, but nonetheless, you still need, you know, a pretty substantial amount of coding expertise. You need some strong math background and statistics. And then you also need all of the technical expertise in whatever domain you're working in. And I think that, that that's certainly been a barrier in the geo domain. I think it's also a barrier in, uh, in microscopy. So um, you, you also, a bit ago, you made this really interesting um, observation that in the data sets that you want, you want some heterogeneity so that you can infer much more broadly from um, the results of any particular model. That's, uh, you know, the, the limitations of being able to infer or see new data um, given some algorithms. Can you talk a little bit about as well within biological imaging, specifically in medical imaging, you have a lot of work being done in pathology labs and they'll use multiple different types of microscopes. You'll have multiple people in the labs and then to some degree you'll be working across labs. And so given that that kind of um, variation that you'll get in results uh, of that kind of biological imaging, what, is, what would you anticipate um, the applicability of some of these algorithms across that kind of variation? Yeah, yeah, that's a, a really uh, fantastic point. And it's a problem that exists really in every area of computer vision, where if you train an algorithm on a specific type or set of images or take off a specific microscope or satellite or, or whatever it might be, um, and then try to apply that algorithm to new images, it's not going to work as well. Um, this, this generalizability problem that exists out there. And it's something that uh, solutions are starting to, to be developed towards, but it's still very much in, in the research domain. And uh, I uh, heard a really fantastic talk from um, Andre Carpathy, the, uh, who's uh, um, the head of the AI and, and self-driving at Tesla, uh, talk about this at a conference where he was talking about how they try to build their data sets to 
you know, cover all these different kinds of edge cases that, that you might actually encounter in the real world. And, uh, and, and you need to do that to train an algorithm that's going to work in all these different diverse environments. And similarly, in microscopy, you're going to need images taken by a lot of different people on a lot of different microscopes if you're trying to train an algorithm that, that someone can just take off the shelf and, and use for their uh, to, to test whatever type of image off whatever type of device. And so that's, that's again, something where you can kind of balance it out between uh, building a, a more diverse data set, although that's very expensive, uh, along with uh, trying to build out um, novel algorithms that can generalize more effectively to types of, of data they've never seen before. Yeah, and so uh, broadly speaking, we, we definitely saw across a range of topics that bio uh, imaging and geospatial imagery there's the generalizability issue, open, well-labeled data, the need for expertise, and the quote-unquote quality of images in terms of size and quantity of objects in the image and the information about the image. Clearly, there is similarities across geo and bio uh, in those particular categories. Um, and I think to some degree that confirmed some of our thinking that there's going to be some challenges in the the adoption of computer vision approaches in biological and medical imaging uh, because of those technical challenges and um, uh, resources that are being leveled. And those are the similarities. What were some of the differences that you saw as well between the two, geo and, and, and bio? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are certainly some differences that I can speak to, but then I think a lot of them um, I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on because I think there, there are things that you see uh, much, much more. Um, but uh, one thing that um, that I found to be uh, particularly interesting is the, the difference um, in terms of, well, you know, I already mentioned that they have some similarities in terms of band uh, selection and things like this, but there's also some differences there where a lot of satellite imagery is still standard RGB and maybe you'll be able to use one of these common three channel models. Um, but uh, there, that's much less common, I think in microscopy or in medical imaging. Um, and so you're much more frequently going to need to deal with, uh, deal with something that's just so different that you're going to have to totally rework your machine learning model. And then another, um, another, Thing that's uh, kind of beginning to be resolved in the geo domain that is uh, much less addressed in the bio domain, at least in my understanding, is the presence of some pre-trained models to work off of. Mm -hmm. So uh, something that has become extremely prevalent in natural scene imagery analysis is the, the, the set of pre-trained models that folks have developed using an enormous amount of compute time on really high really high-powered computers um, with a lot of GPUs for, you know, trained for a very long time uh, to generate these really high-quality models that perform well on uh, these existing data sets that people work with. Um, and these are really important because you can take those models and then do so-called fine-tuning uh, to make them work on your task of interest that's very similar to uh, to what was in the data set, you know, for example, maybe you're you're trying to train a model to detect 
zebras only. That's all you care about for some reason. Um, and so you could start with a data set that, in fact, had no zebras at all in it, um, but was trained for detecting a lot of different types of animals, different you know people, other objects, et cetera, and natural scene images. And you could train just for a small amount of time to make the algorithm work uh, then for your zebra data set. Now, you can't do the same thing where you're going to take something that's trained to find people, cars, animals, whatever, and then train it to uh, just immediately find cells in a microscope image. That, that transfer learning process, as that's called, doesn't work nearly as well. It still works, but it's much, much slower. And so uh, the presence of pre-trained models for these specific domains, be they geo or uh, bio, and, and this is something that's just starting to be resolved in geo. And, and I've seen a couple inklings towards this in the bio domain, but it's a, I think it's still a rapidly growing thing. That will make it a lot easier for people to have a starting point to do work off of. Um, and that will hopefully rapidly accelerate uh, research once once we get there. But aside from these, you know, machine learning, nitty gritty technical challenges, what are some issues with bio uh, that you see at via data or otherwise um, in the biomedical world that are that you think is uh, specific there that is going to preclude uh, or or slow um, advancement? Yeah, no, great question. I think that there's two broad areas of differences between geo and bio that would potentially be more challenging in bio, and the, that would be uh, privacy concerns associated with healthcare data. And then the, the other one would be explainability. Um, and so first with privacy, you know, it's well known that sharing healthcare data is restricted by specific regulations. And these regulations apply to medical imaging as well. Uh, and so being able to share those data among many researchers or um, among people with ML skills and that sort of thing, there will be some friction there. There will be a means of um, slowing down availability of data in some instances. And so we'll either need to figure out how to enable people to opt in their own personal imagery into these particular open source data sets, or we will need to find ways of releasing um, older data um, from, you know, historical um, archives and that sort of thing uh, to, to move things forward uh, at, a, at a pace that we have seen in um, natural scene imagery. <clears throat> so privacy will definitely be a concern, and I think it'll be a concern for the foreseeable future. Uh, explainability is also an issue that I think there's a different threshold for the need for explainability in uh, computer vision algorithms applied to particularly medical imaging than there would be for geospatial imagery. So for example, um, if you are going to apply a computer vision algorithm to uh, identify cancer from a pathology slide, that pathologist that was in charge of that determination would want to know why that slide was tagged as potentially cancerous or not, and what features led to that result. If you can't do a, you know, an ablution or a kind of a understand the provenance of those results through the algorithm, there will be a lack of understanding and a lack of confidence associated with those results 
in terms of using them for diagnostic purposes in, in, a, medical per, in a medical situation, or and also that may raise questions for um, regulators that are thinking about any kinds of algorithms that are moving forward in um, or trying to be used in a diagnostic framework. And so that explainability function, I think, is going to be of a higher threshold in medical imaging than it will probably in biological imaging, um, but that, but definitely um, for uh, geospatial imagery. It's, you just kind of in those other two domains, you just want to know the answer. The answer will be more important than why you got that answer, unless you're you know, one of us pointy head academics who just want to know mechanistically how things work. Um, but in the, in the medical space, that'll be different. Now, so the privacy issue and the explainability issue, I think are gonna be paramount differences between um, the geo example and what's going on in medical imaging in particular. Um, the, I think the other issue of differences between these two uh, domains of geo and bio is market size. Um, there's there's a you know the size of the market for the healthcare industry is it's over three trillion dollars in the United States. The the medical imaging market is over thirty billion dollars, um, and you know the the geo based on work that you all have done to try to characterize what does the geo market look like it's orders of magnitude smaller. Um, right. So, you know the these kinds of um, driving factors and meaning that there's a bigger market that means more opportunities for development, more dollars are being put into that place. And so you'll see advances going on in medical imaging in particular that you wouldn't see in geo uh, just because of that market space. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I feel like we've we've already begun to see some of the really big players in, in AI getting into this uh, medical domain. I mean, I'm thinking off the top of my head of like IBM Watson and things yeah. like this. Um, and uh, I can certainly uh, understand how having those types of folks involved, uh, one, is partly driven by this market size and two, would dramatically accelerate uh, research. So it would be really exciting if we could, uh, if, if that will, uh, could end up accelerating things in the medical domain. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I mean, in the end, I think that, you know, looking across the similarities between bio and geo, and then also looking across the differences in terms of explainability, privacy in the market space. I mean, it was definitely clear to me from doing this exploration of the literature and uh, talking to a handful of experts on this particular topic that, you know, that, that computer vision will easily, strongly and positively impact biological and, and medical imaging. But also, I, I think that we, to some degree, confirm some of our um, suspicions that there's going to be some challenges in the adoption. It's going to move potentially slower than people think it will based on their experiences with how um, advances happened in ImageNet. And um, so it'll be an, a very interesting space to watch over the next while. And um, I think that there's some really interesting companies as well that are coming out in this space that, that, uh, that are making advances. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's going to be really exciting to watch as as this field develops. Well, Dylan, that's about all that we have time for today. Thank you for joining us again on Training Data. I think you're probably one of our favorite uh, uh, <laughs> friends to have on the show. And I, I, love, I love being on the show. It's always fun hanging out with you guys. <laughs> 
And for uh, the listeners, if you're interested in reading more about uh, this work that we did or diving deep into some of the technical differences we've, we've seen here, if you're more of a graph type of person, uh, we definitely uh, welcome you to check out the two-part blog series that's posted on Cosmic Works blog, the downlink, and as, as well as on BNEC's blog, BioQuest. And we'll link to those parts in the show notes. Thanks again, Dylan. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Rule number 40. I'm the guy that does his job. You must be the other guy. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to hear more episodes or be kept up to date when we release a new show, please make sure to subscribe to Training Data wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to find out more information and links to the different sites and data sets and presentations and all the different content that we discussed today, you can find more at cosmicworks.org, that's cosmic with a Q, spacenet.ai, and our blog, The Downlink, that's also with a Q on Medium. As you're seeing here, we like the letter Q. Music was provided by the DMV Zone, and for those of you not in the DMV, that is the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, by Redline Addiction. A uh, big thank you to Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine from Inkytel's Marketing Group. Also a shout out to Hardcast Media uh, for serving as our studio. Thanks for listening and take care.